Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. I have this decision-making system called Ten Ten Ten, where I take a look at every decision, and I think about the options that are available to me, and then I、um, analyze the consequences of those options in ten minutes, the immediate future, ten months, the foreseeable future, and ten years,、uh, the life I want to create. And if you are a manager who does not lead, sometimes you're also going to be hated. If you're a little bureaucratic grunt and all you do is process, manage, and follow the rules, and you know put the puzzle together in a way that is you know、uh, sort of technocratic, you're also just going to drive your people crazy because people need to also to be led. Eventually, we all end up getting closer and closer to our authentic selves. Why? Because it's so unbelievably painful not to. And at a certain point, you just say, "Screw it! I'm going to. I can't do this anymore. I've been holding my breath, or I've been in this uncomfortable suit of clothing for too long." Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 31 of Triumph Connects. I am delighted to be joined by Susie Welsh. Susie had a really amazing career. After graduating from Harvard, she became a crime beat reporter for the Miami Herald.、Uh, but after a short time, was reassigned in what would prove to be a pivotal moment, kind of in her life, to the business section. And she then left journalism and went back to Harvard for her MBA,、uh, and then launched into a successful stint at Bain and Co. as a consultant working with heavy manufacturing clients in the Midwest of the USA. Now, for many people, this would be the start of a story of a successful consulting career.、Uh, but Susie is no ordinary individual.、Uh, like many of life's most interesting characters, she tends to bounce around a bit to doing different projects and things. And after a successful career in consulting, she decided to go back to journalism with a job at the Harvard Business Review, where she was eventually named the editor in chief in 2001. At HBR, she conceptualized and edited articles on topics as diverse as strategy, operations, organizational behavior, and she also penned her own articles on leadership, change in crisis management, and the role of boards, and the proper functioning of HR and career dynamics. With her late husband Jack Welsh, the former CEO of General Electric, Susie is the author of two international best-selling books, Winning. Which was published in 2005, and the Real Life MBA, published in 2015. A small little interesting fact here: during the promo tour for Winning,、uh, I interviewed Jack at the LSE in a Trium event, and it's where I met Susie for the first time. Now, Susie is also the sole author of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal bestseller Ten Ten Ten, a life transforming idea. In fact, we talk about this. Idea during the episode here. Susie has also been a regular contributor to the U.S. television network CNBC, and a very popular daytime television show in America called The Today Show. In addition to her writing and media work, Susie serves on the board of ANGI, as well as being a senior advisor at the Brunswick Group. And last but not least, Susie is currently a professor at our very own NYU Stern School of Business. Where she created and teaches one of its most popular and impactful classes, "Becoming You: Crafting the Authentic Life You Want and Need." 
This course was launched after the pandemic, and as I said, it's one of the most popular courses in the school. And in this episode, I talked to Susie about the reason she put the course together and the secrets to its success. Susie Welsh is a kind of force of nature, with some really important things to share, which she has learned from a lifetime around other leaders, as well as her own experience. I was really delighted when she agreed to be on the show, and now without any further ado, I bring you my conversation with Susie Welch. Susie Welch, welcome to Trime Connects. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. You know, it's really uncommon to be able to talk to somebody with as much wisdom and experience as you have. And and so I want to make sure that I make as much, take as much advantage of the time we have. So I'm just going to jump right into things. You know, the greatest thing about this podcast for me has been I get to talk to so many really interesting and lovely people. And it's just one of the best parts of my job. So uh, and I definitely put you in that category. So let's let's not waste any more of our time and I'll get right into it. You know, I want to talk about three different areas uh, that we've talked about a little bit, you and I, before we came on. One is your uh, kind of new class uh, or relatively new class at NYU called Becoming You. Uh, and then I want to talk a little bit about the basic managerial kind of training and skills uh, and, again, a course that you teach. And then this really interesting topic I want to get to at the end that you kind of have been working on, I think, called Relationship Capital. And an important the importance of friendship. So that's a kind of roadmap. So uh, first of all, let's start with becoming you. Uh, you have this course that's extremely popular at NYU. I think it maybe is the most popular course in the whole university. And you, when you were designing it, you wrote that your goal was to take off maybe two years of wrong turns in in your career. Maybe you could tell us a bit about what you meant by that. And you've also said that it's a type of course that you should have taken at Harvard. So so what's becoming you all about? Okay. All right. I'm going to try to give you the relatively abridged version as your podcast is not 12 hours. And so um, <laughs> I had a long and extremely happy, um, rather irregular career. It was mainly in broadcast journalism by the time um, uh 2018 and 2019 rolled around. I had been on the CNBC and the Today Show, and I had combined my life as a, a consultant and a writer to end up in broadcast journalism, and all was going well. Um, and then um, my husband, Jack, fell ill, and I took a sabbatical from broadcast journalism. And in that period, my son and Jack's grandson started a business together, and I will spare your listeners the um, the uh, mess that landed me as the CEO of this business because it got very successful very fast, and we had two basically 22-year-old bear cubs running it, and Jack, um, who was uh, uh, pretty... Um, uh, incapacitated by that point, said, Susie, uh, uh, before any of our friends find out what's going on over there, get in there and run that place. And so I had a stint as a CEO of a tech company, a music tech company, and I was the oldest employee uh, by 40-something years. The next youngest employee was 26. Um, and this was all going along. And then two things happened in March 2020. One was the pandemic struck, and the other was that Jack passed away. And we all went into the woods, but I went into the woods and thought I was never coming out. Um, and I wasn't even sure I wanted to, but uh, life changes. And uh, two years went by and I was asked to go back onto the Today Show. Um, and I did. And I was on actually on air when I had this eureka that this was the end of that chapter for me. I loved it. I learned so much. I met the greatest people. But there was something else that was calling me. And um, that calling was 
to teach. And so, um, look, one of the great things about having run the Harvard Business Review, um, which I had done in my career, was that, you know, all the business school deans, I ended up into the office of uh, Ragu. And, uh, you know, he looked at me and said, well, uh, I'm sure there's sort of a class you can be an adjunct for, you know, what anything in leadership or communications. Um, these are all things I've written a lot about. And oh, at the time, I was also writing for the Wall Street Journal. And um, and I said, actually, I want to um, write. A, I want to teach a class that I wish I had taken at Harvard Business School. I, I think when you're in a fine business school like NYU, one of the top 10 business schools in, in the world, um, in the country, at least, and, and possibly in the world, um, you almost can you go in thinking you can do almost anything. And then you go in and you sort of get on this conveyor belt and you go into something that was much more predictable than your big dreams and hopes. Um, had been um, suggesting to you. And I think that there is a methodology that I've been developing over the past 10 years in, um, in different capacities um, that might break this conveyor belt and maybe help students discover who they are. And I wish I had taken this class when I was at HBS. It didn't exist. And Raghu said, paused. He was very perplexed. This was not exactly what he was hoping to hear or expecting to hear, I think. And he said, well, we don't have that class. And I said, yes, but I think, and, and this is truly, now that I've done it, um, one of the most insane words to ever come out of my mouth, um, I said, I think I can create that class. Now, to my credit, at this point in my career, I had written six books. Um, and so it's not like I had not created large volumes of content before, sure. uh, but I had never written a class before. Um, and um, he said, well, you can try. And uh, he sent me away. And I, I think that possibly he would say this is not true. He thought he was never going to see me again. Um, but I showed up a couple of months later and I had the curriculum for this class. And he said, well, I think we will let you try it. Um, and they sort of wanted to give me 20 students in a corner somewhere. Um, but then a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, which is that if you offer a class to a bunch of MBA 20-somethings after the pandemic, and it's called Becoming You, Crafting the Authentic Life You Want and Need, you know, if you drop that content into the sea of purpose-seeking people that the pandemic produced, uh, you're going to get some interest. So it ended up that uh, uh, that first semester, 80 students took it because there was um, quite a lot of demand. And they, I think they crossed their fingers and their toes and just said, oh my God, please don't let this be too much of a disaster. Um, but it ended up working out uh, well. And there was the methodology and I rolled it out and it is, uh, it, it's funny when I think back to the first time I taught it, I was learning as much from the students. And I actually said to the students that first time I taught it, look, we are co-creating this class. Mm. I have this material. You are my uh, willing uh, co-creators and let's do this. And I have, of, of course, like any person who's created a class, improved it, elevated it, tweaked it, take taken things out, put a lot of things in. Um, but one of the great joys about how long it's been going now is that I'm starting to hear back from the students from that first class saying uh, the impact of the class on their life. And that's been very gratifying. I will stop talking in a moment, but I will just say the point of the class is to help you answer the question, what should I do with my one wild and precious life? To borrow that line from Mary Oliver, the poet, um, we have but one wild and precious mm -hmm. life. And in a way, we're very spoiled. Um, uh, and I would say this refers to the people listening to this podcast in, the, in that we can do pretty much anything. We're competent. Uh, we are. Um, we have a lot of uh, wind in our backs in terms of, you know, who we know and what we can do and what our resumes say and where we've been educated. And actually, in a way, that's not as much of a blessing as it might seem, because when you can do almost anything, you know, uh, you end up sort of uh, thinking, well, I'll try this and I'll try that. And you end up sort of at age 
40 or 50, um, like that line from the great talking head song, you know, who is this? What is this beautiful house? What is this beautiful car? My God, what have I done? Yeah. Um, and yeah. you have this accidental life and becoming you is about, um, about actually being more deliberate about your journey. No, I think it's fascinating. I, I, you know, I wonder, um, I have no doubt that it's a popular course and I have no doubt that teaching is the greatest profession ever. That's why I like doing it so much. And all great teachers co-create that never ends. And that's one of the things that, that make it really fun. But I wonder, you know, it you as you said, it dropped in uh, at a time where there was a height, heightened kind of, I don't know, interest and questioning about our meaning in life and after the pandemic, et cetera. Yeah. Do you, th do you think that we see a larger proportion of people, young people, older people wondering about this meaning these days? Or do you think that it's something that it will be transient, worrying about a lack of purpose? Do you think that people yeah. just didn't ask themselves this kind of question in the past? Or is it something that we just have more service for somehow now? Well, I think that it's a both and. I mean, I, I, what I think doesn't matter because the research is very clear. There is an epidemic of purposelessness in this country right now. Um, there's stunning research by both the Pew Foundation and the Walton Family Foundation that is stunning because it's not age related. It's not just the Gen Zers. It's people who are all the way up until their 60s and 70s. It is now, why are they all feeling that way? I think the pandemic was a gigantic kind of upheaval. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure that things like this happened after uh, wars and plagues in the past, but people had less optionality and they knew less. You couldn't go online and see all the fabulous lives that other people were living. Mm. You sort of thought, okay, I live in this village and there's three things you do in this village. You're, you know, you're a blacksmith, yeah. you're a, yeah. you know, and, um, and so now we have um, a window into all the options out there and all the people living their perfect lives, um, which gives us this FOMO. Um, but the data strongly suggests that we are in a cultural zeitgeist, uh, whether it's a moment or a trend, I don't know. Um, I'm going to say it's more of a trend, um, that, it's a, that, that it's happening and it's probably with us for the foreseeable future um, because of social media and because these questions are now out there. And I would say the third reason is because they're excellent questions. Mm. Uh, it is, you know, um, uh, uh, we don't want to have lives of quiet misery. Uh, we just don't. I think that I was radically transformed in my life. Um, you know, you just sort of think about these. Uh, I often ask my students to imagine their lives as a movie and which scenes would have to be in it. And one scene that would absolutely have to be in my movie is that when I was a young reporter um, at the Associated Press, um, there was a guy in his 40s who worked the swing shift. So he worked from four to midnight. And in that period, I was working the overnight shift. I was running the overnight shift, but I was a young, ambitious person. And I loved it because it was my first management experience. I was managing a big team on the midnight shift, but that was fine because I was managing. And he worked from four to 12. And I remember one day him saying to me, the problem with this shift is that I, I never see my children. I don't see them when they wake up and I don't see them when they go to bed. And I don't see my wife very much. And it's got all this downside to it. But, you know, for two more years... And I'll get, be able to retire with my pension and this and that. And he just sort of had worked these 28 years on this dreadful shift in expectation of beginning his life when he was retiring. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's kind of dreary, but uh, I guess that's what he's doing. And um, the next year I went off to business school. I had that, that by that point applied to HBS and I got in and I got a phone call one night from somebody who was still working at the Associated Press. And she said, I, I'm sorry, are you sitting down? I have terrible news. 
this guy who was driving home from Thanksgiving um, in North Carolina with his wife and two children. It was a snowy night and they were in a car wreck and um, uh, he and his wife perished and the uh, daughter lived. And um, and it was all for naught, wasn't it? And I remember um, just getting the phone call and just literally thinking, I, I'm not going to postpone joy. Yeah. I'm not yeah. now. Life will postpone joy for you many ways. And, you know, it will, life will intercede and, you know, give you a kid who is troubled and a marriage that doesn't work and a diagnosis that you um, uh, cry for. And there's, you know, life has its own way with you. But, but in as much as we can seek our area of transcendence, as we call it, in, in becoming you, um, there, there you cannot delay. Um, and you, uh, even though life will, will, will kick you off that journey, um, and, but to get yourself back on, because if you don't know where you're going, any old road will do. I am reminded by that, that phone call about that guy saying, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wake up one day. And, and the guy was waiting, um, because I just have this one. Yeah. It's a great example. I mean, Susie, I, I sometimes teach when I'm teaching, uh, leadership, we talk a little bit about narratives people tell about themselves. And yeah. one of the narratives, one a common narrative, unfortunately, is, you know, the the martyr narrative. I hate my job. I, I trudge in every day. I get up. I do it to sacrifice my life for my family, or I sacrifice my life for my children. And not, not that there's not honor in that, uh, but like you said, life is short and then you it doesn't even guarantee you anything. And and plus, not only that, that's an employee that you're not going to get very much out of. You know right. they're they're not going to perform to their optimal level, and 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 therefore the the the, the fun, their function isn't going to be as good as it could be if they had some some more meaning. But Susie, you mentioned something really interesting: their area of transcendence. What do you what do you mean by that? What what okay. where, where does that fit into this becoming you? Yes, well, thank you so much for asking about it. It's my favorite topic. So, area of transcendence is the um, is one of the central. It is the central concept of becoming you. I will just very briefly uh, walk you through the construct itself that our class goes through. Look, one of the underlying premises. I, I uh, don't want to shock everybody out there and, and just have them hit the stop button on this podcast. But um, I, as I say to my students the first day, if, if you're interested in the pursuit of happiness, this is not the class for you. Um, my, this class is not about happiness. If you want to take that class, go to Yale. It's offered free online um, and power to them. But I don't believe happiness is a goal. I think happiness is an outcome. And actually, I'll tell you for my own personal self, happiness is not actually even a value. So I'm not seeking happiness. I am. Um, I believe that. Um, but most people get happiness when they're living lives that are fulfilling. Um, and further, I mean, that would be called what Maslow would have called self-actualization, kind of living your best life. Um, but actually, after 20 years, Maslow himself went back after doing further research and reflection, and he was a brilliant scholar. And he said, there's something above that. There's this area of, there's this a layer called transcendence, which is when we are self-actualizing plus giving back to humanity in some way. We feel connected to the cosmos. We feel bigger than one person. We are somehow part of the uh, the, the the big story that we are not just all about self-actualizing. We are self-actualizing. Plus he called this transcendence. So in um, the Becoming You journey, um, students go on a guided uh, trip towards discovering their own personal and unique area of transcendence. And my proposition to them is that your area of transcendence lays at the intersection of three spheres. The first is when you're, what you're, when you are doing what you want to be doing, that is you are living completely aligned with your values. 
Okay, your most authentic wants, needs, desires, and so forth. But your values, believe me, values is a very vague and fuzzy word, but it isn't when you're done with becoming you. Um, but mm. we get and we dig into your values, spend two weeks on it. And then the second sphere is your aptitudes, which you're really good at. And that comes in terms of your inborn competencies, your skills that are sometimes honed and sometimes inborn, but also your personality and temperament. Um, that's another two weeks of study for us is excavating what your aptitudes actually are, not what you've been told they are. And then the third sphere is um, opportunity. Uh, well, you know, what it is out there that's growing and um, offers you opportunity to make a living because it's all wonderful to lean into your values and aptitudes. But if that lands you as a calligrapher uh, and you have a mortgage, it's just good for nothing, right? And so, um, so this, just to repeat, the three spheres are your values, doing what you want to be doing, your aptitudes, doing what you are really good at. And also the third sphere is opportunity, those areas of economic growth that offer some kind of reward and not just financially, but also intellectually or emotionally, spiritually. There's no point going into AI if it bores you to tears. Okay. Yeah. And at the center of those intersection is what is the area of transcendence. Okay. And so Becoming You is really just a six-week tour through discovering your values, uh, which we do with a lot of exercises and reflections and movies and conversations, but it's, it's very structured. Then uncovering your aptitudes. We do that with three very distinct tests. I'm a big believer in testing that I can't tell anybody's aptitudes. Most people do not know what their aptitudes are at all because they believe the narrative their parents told them. And then finally, opportunity. We study megatrends. We study data from the LinkedIn that we're very lucky to get um, about job growth and function growth. And then we also I have sort of a bonus class on the skills that every business person needs, no matter what happens with the economy. Then we put it all in a blender and the students create uh, their own story of their life for the next 40 years. They get up and they present, here's my area of transcendence, having blended all this, this data. And here's how I'm going to get there. And they create four milestone slides, you know, a, a LinkedIn post, a diary entry for the 10 years going out until they tell the story of their life for 40 years. I want to go back to the values part just for a second, because in some ways, the aptitude parts, I mean, you there's assessments for these. You can kind of figure those out. Uh, you can look at external things about where the opportunities are, but the values things are, are are a bit more tricky. And one of the things that I really like that what you've done in the past is your 10-10-10 rule. And mm -hmm. you have this, you, you ask, for me, it's the questions that are associated with that that are the most interesting. You have these kind of three key questions you go mm, through, mm, and as yes. I, and 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 I was as I was looking at your work to try to prepare for for the podcast, that was something that I've that really struck me. Um, I've mm -hmm. seen different forms of them in different places, but I haven't seen them so clearly articulated. So I wonder if you could just tell us yes. what this ten 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 rule is, and and what are these three questions that guide that the decision making in that in that situation? Okay. 10-10-10 is a decision-making tool, a system that I first developed uh, when I was a working mom of four young children and I was running HBR and I was divorced and I had four kids under the age of five and I thought I was going to be the one woman who could do it all, all at the same time. And as you might expect, my life completely imploded. And in my most desperate moment, I developed a way to make decisions. Um, and it proved to change my life at the time, a, a year, then five, six, seven years later, my life had radically improved. And I, I met Jack and we were re I remarried and I was um, a columnist for Oprah. 
that was a good job. Um, and those are very smart people. It was a great honor. And one day offhandedly, I said to the editor of the magazine, happens to be Gail King, I said to her, I have this thing that I do to make decisions. And I described to her, I, I have this decision-making system called 10-10-10, where I take a look at every decision and I think about the options that are available to me. And then I um, analyze the consequences of those options in 10 minutes, the immediate future, 10 months, the foreseeable future, and 10 years, uh, the life I want to create. And then I grok that data. And uh, she said, stop everything you're doing and write about that right now. And it ended up to be an extremely popular concept. I went on to write a book about it. And um, I'm proud to say that that decision-making system is now taught in universities around the school, uh, around the world, including my own alma mater, Harvard, which is a very warm, warms the cockles of my heart. I actually also teach it in my leadership class at NYU. Um, but uh, the thing about 101010 is it's just a little tool um, that is sort of cute unless you actually know your values. And once you know your values, it becomes an absolutely life-transforming idea. It's a tool, all right? In its, in its most simple form, but it is a life-transforming idea if you know your values. Well, of course, that impelled me to come up with a bunch of different ways that people could determine their values because I discovered um, being one of Oprah's columnists and she would put us all the columnists on buses and we, she'd send us around the country and we would go to pull into like Chicago and all the columnists would um, speak in these gigantic uh uh, convention centers, and I would talk about 10, 10, 10 in values. And then the line waiting for me afterwards would be one woman after another saying, I have no idea what my values are. And so I realized um, that it's very hard to know your values and that a lot of times we end up living by other people's values. A lot of times women um, end up living by their uh, spouse's values, and mm -hmm. I'm sure it goes the other way. Um, but a lot of things get in the way of um, knowing what your values are or living by them. So with 10, 10, 10, I came up with three questions that I asked. That's what you're referring to. And those three questions um, are one of the exercises in Becoming You. I call it the Alpha okay. and Omega exercise. Um, we actually use six um, very structured exercises and activities to uncover your values. Uh, because, because it's been 12 years since I created 10, 10, 10. And so I've had a lot of time to think about different ways. And I actually just came up with another way, which I call the values abacus. And the poor people in NYU's IT department can't get me off their back because I'm going to work with them until until they will, you know, they're, they have, they're very busy and there's, um, but I want them to help me develop this tool as a digital tool, um, which helps people understand the trade-offs and values. But um, so the three questions that are part of what I call the Alpha Omega exercise, um, uh, get at sort of three different types of values we can have. We can have values around our character, we can have values around our lifestyle and we can have values around our um, legacy. And um, it's important. This is an important distinction because when I start my class, I always say to my students, oh, what is everybody's values? And I have them write it down on a piece of paper and I have 40 students per section. Um, that's kind of the sweet spot. I did. It, get, it gets very hard to teach mm. becoming you because it's a very intimate experience. It's larger than that. And uh, around 90% of the students all have the same three values, family, financial security and happiness. And I um, feign a heart attack in the front of the room and just say, no, no, no. Um, these are wonderful life goals and we all want them. But let's talk about what financial security means. Um, because for some people, I had a nice socialist German student in one of my classes and financial security for him meant that he could rent the little store above the little shop he was going to have when he went back to Germany. And I had another student in his exact same section who, for whom financial security meant a helipad at his Greenwich home. Okay. <laughs> 
So we, um, I don't deal in generics around um, values. Values are very personal. They're like your fingerprint. And, um, and I say, let go of those values. One of my favorite students, when we finally went through all six exercise, one of his values was um, living around beautiful things. Okay. That was not on his list of family, financial security mm. and happiness, but this was a real value and he would do anything. He'd give almost anything up to be lit. And I will also say that one of his life idols was Ina Garten. And, and I remember we were talking about something one time and I, we do an exercise where you talk about your favorite things. And he said, Scalamandre wallpaper. And I, oh, I was like, oh my God, me too. I never thought I'd meet anybody. I mean, this was a person who was, who was in, um, he was a decorator before he came to business school. And then actually thought he was going to go into consulting and thank God for the Becoming You methodology because he's back in where he belongs, which is in decorating. He's doing it in a slightly different way, but he was listening to too many of the six horsemen of the values destruction. Um, but I, the three questions are around that. Let me just refer to them. The ones, the one around um, character is what do you want people to say about you when you're not in the room? Mm -hmm. This can be super defining because I've heard people say everything from that she's not crazy like her mother um, to all the way to I'd invest in her. All sorts of things that actually shine a light on your values in ways that are very surprising. Sure. Okay. Very specific question. The second question is around lifestyle, which is what did you love about your upbringing and what did you hate? And the very interesting thing is that very often people are very quick to identify what they loved. Okay. I love the food. There's so much around food. I love my grandmother's presence. I loved the, I love the games we played. I love, then you ask them what they hated and they talk about the fighting. They talk about the secrecy. Um, they talk about whatever chaos. And then you find that even though those are anti-values, okay, they do not want them that by habit, we repeat them. Yeah. And okay. So there's a whole, uh, you know, we spend several hours on this. And then the third one around legacy is fast forward to your, I don't know, 75th, 90th birthday, put a birthday way, way out there. Um, because sometimes I speak to people who are older and I have to sort of say, you know, let's fast forward to your hundredth birthday. And, but with <laughs> students, the 40th birthday, you're over the hill. I love it when they're all retiring at 65, like they're all going to be decrepit and fall apart. I have to remind them I'm 64. Um, and I say, you know, fast forward to this birthday in the distant future, what would make you cry at that birthday from regret? And, um, you know, there's a lot of diversity in the answers, you know, that I never reconciled with my brother, that I could not find a way to stay sober, that I never did fix the company, that I let my parents down. These are actually the beginnings of, of threads that lead us to our values. Mm. Um, you know, we do not pick our values out of the sky, um, as we so often do, or we, we don't in becoming you pick them out of the sky with virtues that make us feel good, like, um, generosity, uh, self-determination. Like I have a buzzer that I hit when I hear one of these. Okay. Mm. And these are all virtues and we agree they are, but they're not values per se. They yeah. might be, but not without investigation. So you bring up one of my favorite exercises because it's there's um, I jokingly call my class the class where everyone cries. And there is a point in becoming you where everybody cries. One of the exercises is going to set someone off. And I actually did the one of the exercises with a group of very senior level executives at a big industrial company because I was working with them on corporate values. But I said, to understand what values are, let's start by talking about what personal values are. And I ran them through one of the becoming you 
exercises yeah. just to sort of familiarize them with what values really were. Oh my God, bunch mm -hmm. of blubber. It was a blubber fest. Um, <laughs> and because it's, you know, um, this is really personal stuff and it really matters. Mm. Um, and so uh, those questions can really set people off. Um, uh, but I tell people the first day of class, if you are not comfortable with being vulnerable, if you are at a place in your life right now where you can't go there, um, that's okay. But this class is probably not for you right now. What I admire about that is is you can't ask somebody their values. I mean, you say, what are your values? And you're not going to get anything. You have to ask them indirect questions and then get them to interpret their answers in the same way. So a little exercise I do, and I don't do the what it would make you cry at 65. You might, I, I say, um, you've unexpectedly died at 65 and a professional is writing a one-page obituary for you. What what would make you proud and what would make uh, you sad? And so yeah. I have them write, I have them write those obituaries. And then at the end of the day, we put them into a fire and we say, uh, you have agents, you have agency in this. These, yeah. nothing is written. Um, you have the power to do these kind of things. And so again, I, I only share that because through the interpretation of what they write down, you find out what they fear and then the opposite of what they fear Absolutely. is often what they value. And, and those questions are, I just think I haven't seen them set in such an easy, nice way that reveals a lot about people. So, th so those yeah. are great. And that, and that 10, 10, 10 rule is, uh, is, is a wonderful way to get to that. But you mentioned something when we were talking there. Um, I love that exercise, by the way, I have to just say, I love it. And if I could find a way to have fire in my classroom, I might steal it. From <laughs> I, I was well, going yeah. to actually do a, a ceramics project in my classroom. And I, I, because I wanted to teach this concept of kintsugi, which is a Japanese art form and has important, um, uh, important lessons about resilience. And I mentioned doing ceramics in the classroom and uh, the department head was, um, yeah, no. well, I get the privilege of doing it outside. And then one, the, the extra step is, before they do this, they take their letters, they go on, they get into pairs and they go on walks through the woods with a lantern and they talk about their obituaries to the other person. Oh. It's a little bit dark. They aren't doing it face to face. So it gives them a I little bit it. of comfort. And you look through the woods and you see all the lights wandering oh. around in the woods. And then you, they come back at a certain time and you use the lights to start the fire. And then oh you start God. the fire and you burn their obituaries. Oh, that so is gorgeous. Where do you do the, this? This is so uh, great. Yeah, well, we do it at different places. Last time I did it was at uh, HEC in Paris. They yeah, have a chateau who is out that has the outside space to do it. Of course, yeah, okay. Yeah, but it's uh, it can be a powerful exercise, you know. It's and again, you these kind of wizened and and wizened and old and scarred business people, and they just don't yeah. take the time often to take the step back and ask themselves that question. Yes. So. Um, yes, and I think actually age is just an important thing that you mentioned because I have taught um, Becoming You to all different age groups. I've taught it to our MBAs and some of them are young. And then I was hired by a big bank to come in and do it with their clients who were writing their wills. So you can imagine they were quite a bit older. And yeah. it's a very different experience given mm -hmm. how much you've been bumped and bruised by life so far. Yeah. So, And different sets of fears. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, one one of the common ones I find with people who have more years of experiences, I found I've wasted my life. I've yes. wasted my years. And now I'm at the end and I don't have money left. And I, yes. all that time that I wasted doing all that shit that I didn't like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so excuse my language listeners. No, but I mean, I've um, definitely heard this kind of, I've heard this. Uh, I mean, I was with a group not long ago and somebody said, I I'm looking at my values. I'm not living by a single one of them. Mm. 
Um, yeah, and that's, no. that's, that's, that's a tough moment. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned in, in passing the six horsemen of destruction. I've got to pick you up on that because that's yeah. such a great so, title. You know, what, what why are don't six we live horsemen? by our values, right? Why don't we live by them? And so I have come up with this rubric for class, which I call them, I, it gets me, it allows me to use really cool art. I love putting it to my lectures, poems and paintings and music videos. I, I may, I'm sure I'm the only business school professor in the world who uses as part of her to teaching a uh, video of the heavy metal band Disturbed singing Sounds of Silence, but it makes its point for my students. But um, so I uh, I have the six horsemen of values destruction. And I, uh, you know, because I'm a writer, I, I can't help but they all start with E. And the first is expedience. You know, you value the intensity of the city. You never are going to leave the city. You love the energy of the city. And then it's just very hard to go to the grocery store and you end up living in the suburbs. This is expedience. Or, you know, you are hoping always to go into Hollywood, you always wanted to be in the movies, but then, oops, Bain and McKinsey recruit on campus, and next thing you know, you're in consulting. I mean, so expedience gets in the way of our values all the time, um, because life is hard enough as it is, and we take that easier road. Uh, yeah. And I'm guilty of it every day, and so is everyone else. And expedience is one of those six horsemen. Um, the second one I call eyeballs. It's really optics. It's like, what will people say? Um, mm -hmm. I I, uh, I use a poem in the class, which uh, the author of the poem talks about how he didn't marry the woman he loved. And at the end, he gets drunk at a party and he says, I, I never married Darlene. And they all said, really, why not? And nobody really cared. But he had lived his whole life according to the um, optics he thought of a decision. And it's uh, it's very it's a very interesting idea how much we care about what people are thinking about us. And usually very much fewer people than we think, care about what we're doing. Yeah. Um, there's expectations, our own expectations of ourselves. There's often cultural expectations. I see this with my students where there's first generation, second generation, third generation Americans. Um, and the expectations are different about what you're going to do at business school. You know, if you're from an old, wealthy uh, American family, your parents have got different expectations than a kid who's coming in whose parents gave up everything and left Korea and been working three jobs and you're going to get the highest paying job. So there's expectations yeah. Um, and then there's economic security, which we talked about earlier. Ecosystem is the term I use for family, um, where we we have certain values, but to accommodate our families, we don't live by them. And this is I actually have a good friend right now who loves her job and she can't get daycare, but get her babies or blah, blah, blah. And she's actually giving up her career because of family ecosystem, uh, ecosystem needs. And, mm. and then finally, um, there's events. And events are the biggest problem with values because you're bumping along and um, you have these values and then somebody in your family gets sick yeah. or uh, you get fired or there's a pandemic. And so there almost everything in the world is aligned to move us away from our values. But to be bold enough to um, tweak one of the greatest quotes of all time, um, I will say that the arc of life is long and it bends towards authenticity. And mm. I think that eventually we all end up getting closer and closer to our authentic selves. Why? Because it's so unbelievably painful not to. And at a certain point, you just say, screw it. I'm going to, I can't do this anymore. I've been holding my breath or I've been in this uncomfortable suit of clothing for too long. And I'm going to, you know, like we all talk about it, like how sort of like the, there's no difference between like a four-year-old boy and an 80-year-old man and that they're just doing whatever and saying whatever they want. Yeah. Um, they've just said, and so- you do bend towards authenticity. One of the whole purposes of becoming you is to bend you there faster.
by helping you unpick what your values are and understand if you are living by them or not. And if not, why not? Well, I think one of the most, I mean, again, I'll go back to it. One of the most important things is to, is to have that examined life, right? And I think a lot of people don't think about it. And what you're proposing and what you're doing is actually quite dangerous. I, I, I might give oh. you a warning. I mean, they, they put Socrates to death for this, right? Because yeah, no, it's he... the most dangerous game. It's the most <laughs> dangerous game. It is. It is. I am fully aware of it. It, it is. It is. It's very uh, disruptive to to ask people, look, why, why do you really believe this? Why do, is this just because your culture is because of your, where you yeah. come from? It's because what your parents said, do you really want to do this? That's yeah. hugely revolutionary. I mean, it can oh, be incredibly crazy, disruptive. Right? It is. You can really poke the bear. I mean, I have this one exercise that I ask my students to do is new this year. I just tried it for the first time. I think I'm going to incorporate it into the curriculum um, where I ask them to write down what they wanted to be when they were young and then explain why they didn't do it. And it's the stories are kind of heartbreaking. I wanted to be an archaeologist. My parents said there was no money in it. Um, mm -hmm. And there's story after story of people who had real intellectual passions. And we let go of our dreams so fast. And yeah. then when you said, but why didn't you um, chase that dream? It comes down to self-confidence. And then when you tell people, well, why didn't you have self-confidence? You start going to inner child stuff that is very dangerous. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, my favorite story I heard about this one, somebody said, you know, I wanted to be a philosopher. And his father said, fine, okay, let's, I, I don't really understand what a philosopher is. Take me to the philosophy store so I can see how you're going to make money. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of the philosophy. But yeah, I mean, the, the fine citizens of Athens put Socrates to death for corrupting the youth and, and taking yeah, them off yeah. the path of where they needed to be. So just, right. just be careful there, Susie. Okay, I don't want you to be. Listen, I change topic a little bit because I want to get to the other topics because they're fascinating to me as well. Um, you have been in and around professional business studies or executive education or executive teaching and writing for your for a long time. Yeah. I look at other areas of study and let's say I look at chemistry or I look at physics or I look at medicine and I can say, okay. 40 years ago, if I picked up a book from physics or chemistry or medicine, it'd be a lot different than a book I picked up now because the, the kind of they've learned stuff and they grow. It doesn't mean that they still don't know things and it's still, it doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. But I pick up sometimes a book on leadership or on management from 40 years ago. And I'm like, I, I'm not sure if we're not just spinning our wheels here. So, but I want to ask you because you have a much kind of better, I, I'm kind of in the weeds too much. Do you think we're mm -hmm. making progress in this, or is it is it just an impossible kind of uh, kind of goal uh, I'm setting? I think it's just extremely dangerous to ask me this question because I'm now uh, I'm about to offend everyone listening. So I have two thoughts on this. Number one, um, almost everything written about leadership and taught about leadership is written and taught by people who have never been leaders. And it's very easy to write about leadership when you've never done it. I mean, it's just, you know, to sit on your academic high horse and talk about what leadership is when you've never managed three people um, is uh, to me kind of, and I, I think I really experienced this when I was running the Harvard Business Review is that uh, professor or professor would submit all these, you know, lofty tomes on leadership and they've actually never practiced it. Um, mm -hmm. And I always just, just love it. 
in a way that pleased almost none of the uh, none of the academic people involved with the magazine um, when a, when a practitioner would write something when Larry Bossidy would write something for us or somebody would actually run and run something um, because leadership is such a messy unclean enterprise with so much nuance that to try to talk about it in a way that's not um, capturing that is was very frustrating to me and I was very lucky that. I, when I went to business school, I had managed people because I managed the overnight shift and I managed a union shop and I, um, and then when I got to, and then I've managed many people in my career, but then I managed HBR and blah, blah, blah. So I think there's a big problem that, um, that we're getting a lot of thinking and talking about leadership by people who haven't done it. And that's problematic to me. We would never have a professor at a medical school who had not done surgery, teach surgery. Uh, we mm -hmm. just wouldn't do it. And so I find this to be one thing. The other is I have been for the last 30 or 40 years of my life, the lone voice in the wilderness who thinks there's no distinction between leadership and management. And, uh, you know, my job was sitting there at HBR editing articles that went on and on about the difference between these two things. And it's just not true. It's not true in the real world, world uh, because if you're a leader who doesn't sometimes manage, everyone hates you. You're up in the clouds. You don't get the realism, the realistic implications of what you're saying. Um, you don't understand that all the the uh, thunderbolts you're throwing from on high have to be handled by real people. So if you're a leader who just who just is not aware of the managerial and management impact of what you're saying, you just are setting yourself up to be hated. And if you are a manager who does not lead, sometimes you're also going to be hated. If you're a little bureaucratic grunt and all you do is process manage and follow the rules and, you know, put the puzzle together in a way that is, you know, uh, sort of technocratic, you're also just going to drive your people crazy because people need to also to be led. And so you hmm. have to both lead and manage simultaneously. I think this is the most obvious concept in the world and yet it's heresy. Okay, in, in academia. And in fact, in my class, I, mean, I, I teach managerial skills at, at NYU. I actually have this term, lanager, which is the combination of leader and manager. It's how, the only term I use. I don't refer to leaders or managers. I use lanagers. And that's only because meters was too weird when you combine management and leadership. So <laughs> we use lanager. And there was a hilarious moment one time where I had the slide about lanagers up. And one of my many fabulous visitors, I, I uh, heavily use uh, real life practitioners in that class. Almost there's 12 classes, eight classes are filled with real life practitioners who come in and speak to us about what I'm teaching. Um, one of the world's greatest headhunter came in to talk to us about um, hiring and what really is involved in being a good um, uh, uh, being good at hiring. And he saw my slide and he said, Susie, I, I hate to do this because, you know, I, I respect you so much, but there's a typo on that slide. And I said, no, there is not. OK, <laughs> the word leader in here and we don't use the word man. Everybody thought I'd set him up to say it, but I did not. Um, and I really do believe this concept. And this is why I draw on practitioners in all in almost every yeah. class I can. I think you definitely I mean, I'm going to I'll push back just really gently because I, you use oh, the analogy of, of a surgeon, which I, I think is true. And I think that it, you get insights into leadership that you do not have if you don't lead. Definitely. And I think that's true. But a different analogy is, which I'm sure you've heard, is athletics. So you can have athlete coaches that were professional athletes, and they were good at it, and they're and they're good coaches, yes. right? Um, but you can also have really great coaches that would just be a disaster to put on the sports yeah. field. Absolutely. Um, 
And the idea there is that I, as a leader, I guess it depends on the model of leader. If, if my leadership job is to help other people do better, right? Then in, the, in that situation, that definition of leadership, I don't have to do it myself to not to be able to help other people in that coaching role. Do you think that that analogy yes. is is right or not so much? It's okay. I mean, I'm not going to, I look, I, you know, it's case by case. Okay. I do yeah. think I 100% agree that there are people who are very good coaches who could not play the game professionally. Okay. We, we you know, Bill Belichick, greatest coach of all time, you know, he yeah. was a good college athlete, but he could have never played professionally. And his main sport was lacrosse anyway, kind of thing. And he, he just knew the strategy. Um, and I definitely believe that there's, there are leadership principles that sometimes very fine minds um, can discern um, that actual practitioners um, could not discern. And so they, we, we, they do us a great service. I mean, there's a great professor at London Business School who, talks about how really good leaders manage distances um, and how they manage. And, and and no leader is going to be coming up with that probably because they're too busy, you know, dealing mm. with board, board, the board Michigas or, or, you know, yeah. some good employee who's just gone off the rails um, or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, we owe a debt of gratitude to some of the great leadership thinkers. I mean, I, I don't believe that um, Jim Collins has ever really led anything. He keeps his shop very small, um, and yet he's given us good to great and many other great um, leadership books of philosophy and concept and practices. And 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 that is because of his fine research mind. Um, okay. And so I definitely do not want to throw that out the window at all. I teach those people. I mean, I, I, I teach Peter Drucker. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, I bend my knee at the altar of Peter Drucker and um, and he was a he was a management philosopher and a leadership philosopher. So I think they play a role. Um, but I think that we are not doing our students um, the, uh, the full service unless we um, also bring in practitioners. And I let me give you just one small example of this. I do teach this one class on people management, obviously, as part of teaching management. You sort of talk about people. And I brought in a panel of three of the greatest managers that I've ever known. Um, two of them I just know um, professionally, but one was my own boss. And they're very different varieties. One's a real hard ass, pardon my French. Uh, one is sort of kinder and gentler, and one is somewhere in the middle. And we were talking about the different concepts. I was teaching the concepts. And mm. they were opining and providing color commentary from the field. And I think it was, you know, the students sort of commented that this was their favorite class. It was that one-two punch. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually saw scales falling from students' eyes as I was up there saying, this is you know, I, the employee who has all the right values, who is, you love their behaviors and they just can't perform. This is your heartache. You know, you hire on top of them, you, you do everything you can. And then finally they just can't do the work and they're making everyone mad. And I was teaching this concept, which is a well-established concept, the four quadrants of employees. And then each person on the panel told a story about how hard it was to actually manage around this. And it was the combination of the two that I think was so powerful in mm. the classroom. I, I completely agree. I mean, it's uh, without including practitioners, it's like uh, I don't know, being a scientist without ever collecting data, right? I mean, yeah. you, you can't, you can't, you ha you have to test your ideas, and and the test yeah. your ideas is the topic that you're interested in. Yep. All right. So the last thing I want to talk about, uh, which I've been looking forward to this part, is relationship capital. Now you're you're working on what sounds to me a fascinating new area that you call relationship capital. In fact. For the Trium uh, students who are listening to this and the alumni, unfortunately, you won't get a chance at this. You're going to be teaching a session on this in San Francisco for us, or that's the plan. Yes. The plan is that I'm going to debut my pilot of this new class called Becoming Friends 
uh, creating the social, uh, the relationship capital that you need for success at Triumph in July. Uh, um, so help me God. So I'm going to, I'm trying very hard. I am um, uh, doing the research now. Um, the genesis of this class is that um, one of the concepts in Becoming You is about um, building relationships. Uh, I have a, a belief that uh, relationships are like tiles in a mosaic. You know, it's like uh, every single person you know or friend you have is a tile in the beautiful mosaic of your life. And nobody is the whole picture, but together mm. they make the beautiful picture. It's a tapestry, mm. blah, blah, blah. And I have been... Um, stunned every single time I teach Becoming You uh, that there's actually sort of this orthodoxy out there about networking. And I find networking to be a vile um, uh, concept that is also completely ineffective and does not work. Um, in, my, in my experience as a business person, um, with my own experience with a, uh, a large group of uh, relationships, but also in watching Jack up close and personal, I mean, that everything in business happens um, through friendship. And um, and so I wanted to begin to investigate what those what what makes a good friendship and how do we build relationships and what those look like. And I am that early in my research. Um, I do have some theories that I'm I'm chasing down. Um, I do know that in the olden days, sort of pre-modern times, almost every K through 12 student in America took a class called how to be a friend. I would have to say this is one of the great losses to American education because perhaps nothing would prepare you better for life than to know how to be a friend. I think that um, uh, there's an unfortunate um, narrative right now about networks needing to be large, whereas in fact, what you need is deep um, ties that are based on non-reciprocal foundation that you're mm. friends for no reason, except for that you're friends. And then, you know, in 10 years, you need something and suddenly you have a friend and you just have to go into it with no expectations. And so I'm beginning to develop relationship capital is real. And if you look at, at least I believe, if you look at the top most successful CEOs, they've got a lot of things going on. They are very, very smart. They've made, they have good decision-making processes, X, Y, and Z, right? Usually they're just very smart. Um, and they've got something new and important that the market needs. But I've never, ever encountered a top CEO, and I've been blessed in my life to know a lot of them, um, who did not have re relationships that were very profound and, and different than other relationships. And none of them ever think about or thought about networking. Okay, they thought about relationships in a very old-fashioned way. Yeah. Um, and this whole uh, theory around this, in fact, the most watched content that I've ever made, um, and I used to have a show for CNBC, and so this is saying a lot because there were uh, many, many millions of views on that show, was about something called the favor economy, where there's this whole economy of favors that people do for each other with no expectation of return. And very, very wise people get into that favor economy very early in their careers. Mm. And the people who say, I don't understand, why would I do favors for that person? They can never help me out. Don't get it. And their careers will show for it. So I'm beginning to do the research on it. How this all comes together for a class um, is anyone's guess. I um, This will be the third class I've created for NYU. Um, and so I'm counting on the fact that it's all going to come together the way it did for becoming you and managerial skills. Um, I do... I have reserved the right to pull the ripcord and say I'm coming to teach something else because it's not coming together. But I strongly suspect there's gold in them, our hills. As, as do I. I'm sure. I'm sure it will be a, a roaring success. But you know, I want to. I want to deep dive into this a little bit. Let me try to clarify the question. So we've known for a long time, and if you look at 
research on meaning in life and happiness, that a core part of this is having deep, sincere, long-lasting friendships, the kind of friendship that you don't see the person for years and you see them and you instantly are back at that friendship level. This gives us meaning and happiness uh, almost like any, nothing else. But in professional life, sometimes you hear this advice that you have to keep your professional and personal life very separate. Ah, sorry. That you you, you have to it. you have it's to worry because I because this is the worry that people have. And I, I'm not I'm not promoting this idea. I just want to hear yeah. your response to it. It is horrible to be in a situation, so it says the argument, that you have to choose between being a good friend and a being a good business person. Mm-hmm. And to put and to put yourself in a relationship where you are with that conflict, that is something that you should avoid because you sh- you can have good relationships at work, you can have good relationships in your in your professional life, but they shouldn't cross that boundary into true friendship. Why in the world would you not want to be deep friends with the people you work with? You spend every day with them. Why would you put up boundaries? Some of the best friends you'll ever make in your life, you make it work. Um, it's absolutely BS and it's, uh, you're, you're robbing from yourself, the incredible joy of working with people. You really like work close friends. I mean, one of my closest, I mean, I'm sorry, I have all of my friends come from work. You're doing something, you're together all day. You have a certain language with each other. Um, you've shared experiences. And I think that, what, um, um, I, I mean, I get the argument. It's, it's a very intellectual one. I mean, I think in reality, you, you want to be friends with everybody both, and you should not separate your work friends from your other friends, but you should understand and be wary of the very real danger of false families. So that happens where workplaces sort of become your family and your family becomes the outsider. And Mm -hmm. that is a very dysfunctional thing that happens in unhealthy companies and people fall into it and it always blows up. It always blows up. And so there is, there are, there are boundaries to this where you don't want work to if your work family is replacing your real family you need to go home and figure out what's wrong okay and you need to fix that problem and the manage and, and managers and sh- leaders should not let it happen um because it's very unhealthy and then three people get fired and two don't and 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 disaster ensues um but uh you know in life we have deep friendships with people that are that we don't work with and there are crucible moments where things happen and very hard things happen where you have to tell them, look, I don't want to go to your son's wedding because when your son and my daughter were young, they dated and he really hurt her in a way. And so it's not like hard, difficult conversations and dilemmas mm. don't happen in real life. They happen in real life and they happen at work. Okay. Yeah. And one of, our, one of the questions I'll most definitely um, deal with in this class is whether or not you can be close friends with your boss. Well, you know, you spend all your time with your boss and oftentimes they do become very dear friends. I mean, I, uh, my boss at Bain, it remains one of my closest friends and he was my boss, but we were careful to observe the correct boundaries. Um, you know, in that, uh, we were both married. We always went out with our spouses. We, you know, this is back before I knew Jack and I knew that his first job was to be my boss. And if I did something wrong, I was going to hear about it. And in fact, one time I made a gigantic disasters decision at work and, um, and I was a high performing employee at Bing, but I made one big mistake because I, on the a trip home from visiting a client, I'm a good mimic and I mimicked the client, which was against Bain's values. Um, and he reported me 
to the authorities. Okay. He went up to my boss mm. above, he went to boss above him and he said, Susie did this very bad thing. Everyone saw it. And I got in terrible trouble for it. And they couldn't fire me because the client liked me too much. And I did redeem myself. Um, uh, but um, he, and I never got mad at him. Not one second. He did the right thing. Okay. Um, and it didn't affect our friendship. Oh, here's, I mean, the other side of it though. And, and I agree the boundaries are strong. And, and again, I'm not arguing this because I agree with it because, but it's something I hear a lot. And the other is yeah. fear of litig litigation from non-friends. So the idea is that people get really worried that if people know that you have a good personal relationship with somebody, then they will they will use this as a as a bludgeon that expose you it exposes you to legal risk and that these legal risks have become even multiplied in yes. time now because of protected classes et cetera et cetera that don't maybe are or don't happen to be your friend and there's questions about all of that so I wonder it seems like again. It seems like a bit of a minefield. It is a minefield and the lawyers is real. I do actually have a slide in my managerial skills class. And when I teach crisis management, a slide that says, don't listen to the lawyers. Lawyers almost always give you bad advice um, because they're protect, they're, they're playing defense. And uh, the, the, it actually just forces you to be a better leader. Okay. You've got to be very clear about what top performance looks like. You have to be very clear about what values are and you have to be careful. Like, okay, don't flaunt your friendship in the office. Okay. Don't, don't create a special class of people who are your friends. Um, you know, be cognizant of people's feelings. I mean, you, you have to be a better leader and a better manager for it, but you can't write it off. If you are naturally drawn to being friends with somebody, uh, you're depriving yourself and that person of one of life's great joys, which is a friendship. And actually, in a startup situation, and having having been through a startup and run a startup, if we weren't all friends and didn't love each other, we wouldn't have done anything. It was our love for each other that yeah. got us these brutal times. And when when we sold the company, we sat together as friends and cried. For mm. and what we all missed the most was that we weren't going to be together anymore every day. Yeah, and yeah. I fired people from that company who were friends. I had to, but they understood why. Like I would call them in, they would say, I know, I know, I didn't hit these numbers. I know, you know, what's my deal? And I would say, okay, look, I'm giving you three weeks. That's all I can give you, blah, blah, blah. But they knew, and I'm still friends with them. Yeah. Um, you have to be a very good leader. I get the I get the legal minefield of it, but um, um, I don't think it's any way to live. Okay. Well, that's a good place to stop. And so my final question for you, I, I ask this for all the guests. Yeah. What's a, a book, movie, play, podcast, poem, painting, anything, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, something you've enjoyed mm. consuming in the last year that you'd recommend to our audience? Okay. Well, if you want a really, really good laugh and you just want to laugh your head off, um, you have to watch Kunk on Earth, C-U-N-K on, on the BBC. I, I'm telling you. I just scream with laughter. It is absolutely some of the smartest humor in the world and it's uh, intelligence, smart humor. And I, I, I highly recommend it. If you haven't seen Succession, uh, you know, this is sort of, um, this is our Shakespeare, but it's not about business. And in fact, I often say to my students, don't think that shows about business. That shows about family. It doesn't mm. mean it can't teach us. But one of the things when I watch Succession, I say, thank God business isn't like this. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful like reminder that real business is not this dysfunctional. Mm. Um, and so uh, those, those those are two things I would recommend. I could go on and on and on. I'm no. a huge consumer pain but those are the two things i would say if you want to laugh watch punk on earth if you want to cry watch succession great great choices i enjoyed both of those very much Susie. thank you so much for your time i appreciate it my great pleasure thank you for having me 
You've been listening to Trium Connects, a podcast for the Trium community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Trium Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.